welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Zassini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, it's been like nine months, I realized, since I had Michael Pina on the podcast. He's over at SB Nation now, and I really just felt like I needed to get him on. There's an, such an intersection of things happening right now across the NBA that he's written about or that he covers regularly. So, Pina, how are you doing, man? I'm doing wonderful, Sam. It's been too long. Honestly, it really has. I, I just so thoroughly enjoy whenever you come on and it's just so disappointing <laughs> that we have to start with such a strange little trade that just happened right before uh, we decided to record here. Uh, so Alan Crabb is going from Atlanta to Minnesota for Jeff Teague and Trevion Graham. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this. I'm actually going to analyze it on The Athletic at some point today uh, with Seth, Seth Part now and Danny LaRue. By the time this podcast goes up, I would imagine that that's going to be up. And we'll probably go into a little bit more detail there. But ultimately, this is just kind of a weird little move, I think, that isn't going to mean much long term. So, wait, we're not covering this for the whole hour? That's not, no, this isn't the I subject? I don't think we're going to do that, Pina. I don't oh. That's a shame. This is such a rich trade worth analyzing for as long as time. Uh, no, I actually told you before we started recording, I can't even get the mental strength to try to analyze this trade. I, I, I assume that there will be another shoot to drop on either side of the fence with the Hawks and the Timberwolves, but until that happens, I really don't care all that much, to be honest. Yeah, like I think it's important to note a couple of things. So first, like on Atlanta's side, this doesn't affect their flexibility in any way because they stayed under the cap to make this move. So they can still aggregate Jeff Teague or Trevion Graham in future deals. Uh, second, it's just like a sensible move for them, I think, to go out and get a second point guard. Eventually, at some point, you don't want to have Trey Young playing like 38 minutes a night in March whenever you're in last place in the NBA, right? Like that doesn't seem like a great idea. And as much as I think Brandon Goodwin has been helpful for them, like Jeff Teague's just better, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then on the other side, like I think that Minnesota is just kind of moving parts around to make a bigger splash. So I think that's really it. Do you have any other strong thoughts on this? Not particularly. I mean, I, I, I echo what you just said about the need to get Trey Young some sort of help. I'm sure he probably wanted someone who he could play with. I mean, it'll be really interesting yeah. to see uh, if Lloyd Pierce goes the two-point guard route. I would imagine no, because Trey Young is such a porous defender that you can't you can't play him next to someone like Jeff Teague or you'll get shredded. So I, I don't really know. I mean, I don't really, really even know then what, like – what avenues Teague has to playing time in if that's the case, because Trey plays so many minutes and he has such a high usage. So I, I, I think that, you know, there's a possibility that they flip him again to someone. I think, I think there are teams out there that could actually use Jeff Teague. that are competitive. So, I mean, his numbers this season have not been terrible. And uh, I would imagine he's not pumped about this new role uh, after coming out of Minnesota where, you know, they benched him basically to play Jared Culver um, in the starting lineup. So, yeah, it's just a weird one. And I think that, as you said, the Timberwolves probably have some more, uh, more fish to fry uh, after this uh, after this one gets done. So uh, besides that, I mean, I have really nothing else to, to, say, to say about it. Yeah, I think it's probably just worth moving on. I wanted to talk to you about Brooklyn, which is where you live, if I remember correctly, right? You're correct, Sam. The Brooklyn Nets last night lost to the Philadelphia 76ers, and Kyrie Irving. Uh, played and then spoke with the media afterward. And Timmy Goodtimes, Tim Bontemps, got uh, a quote from Kyrie that was startling. We'll, we'll go with startling, I think, is the right word. Uh, just a, gl- a glaring quote. Just a, it, was, it was a typical Kyrie quote, <laughs> right? Like, you can't tell if he is purposely doing something or if – it is unintentional, and he just doesn't really care. Like, it, there's so much going on there that I can't tell. It's 
I mean, this is what we've come to expect, I guess, right? Like him throwing, essentially throwing half of the roster under the bus by yeah. saying that uh, the team that's in place and the roster that's in place is not the one that will be on the floor next season when they're actually trying to compete for a championship. And, you know, acknowledging that publicly is probably not the smartest thing to do. Uh, you know, he mentions, uh, as, as the core pieces, he mentions KD, DeAndre Jordan, Garrett Temple, which is weird, uh, Spencer Didwitty and Karis LeVert. And it's like, okay, well, Jared Allen's still on the roster and Joe Harris, who would presumably be a critical piece next season, assuming that they resign him or figure out a way to keep him, uh, not including them here. This is why you just don't name names and you just say, yeah, you just, this is why players just got to keep it general. But uh, I mean, it, it is, it's not great to hear from him and it's it, you can't really get another player you would just kind of either give him the benefit of the doubt or wash over it and not think twice but when Kyrie speaks and says something like this I think it it, it is it's biting well it's that and the fact that I think Kyrie is actually really intelligent and I think a lot of what he does is purposeful because of that like I I think he's thoughtful I think he knows what he's doing a lot of the time, maybe not, maybe I'm, you know, off on that, but anytime like I've <laughs> been around him, like I, I do actually find him to be intelligent if rabble rousing. <laughs> sure. uh, here's, here's the full quote. Uh, I guess that Kyrie was asked after tonight's loss. This is from Bon Temps uh, about uh, going against the top Eastern Conference opponent and it showing how much work the Nets still have to do in order to compete. Kyrie said, it's transparent, it's out there, it's glaring in terms of the pieces that we need in order to be at that next level. I'm going to reiterate it. We're going to do the best with the guys that we have in our locker room now, and we'll worry about all the other stuff in terms of moving pieces and everything else. As an organization down the line in the summer, it's just something that we signed up for. We knew that... We knew what we were coming into at the beginning of the season. Guys were going down left and right. GT is out. DJ just got hurt tonight. Wilson is coming back. We've got complimentary young guys as well that have done a great job the last three years collectively. I feel like we have great pieces, but it's pretty glaring. We need one more piece or two more pieces that will complement myself, KD, DJ, GT, Spence, Karis, and we'll see how that that evolves. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong, right? He, he, they need pieces. Sure. They, they need pieces. Uh, uh, do, do they need pieces to surround Jarrett Allen or DeAndre Jordan? Like, it's just really funny that DeAndre Jordan, I think, has just been like an, a disaster this year. He has not been good at all. We knew when that contract was signed, like, hey, it's probably part of getting Kyrie and Kevin to go. But man, that is just a terrible contract that is not going to continue to age well for four years. And this is where we're at. Like, and this is why those contracts signed by DeAndre Jordan and these fringy figures now in the NBA that have uh, such cachet with stars around the league due to their former stature. This is why these things end up being harmful down the line when you're trying to build. Yeah, the the DeAndre Jordan contract is obviously very unique because it's possible if they were not willing to acquiesce, meaning the Brooklyn Nets, then they would not have gotten KD and Kyrie. I mean, I think it was a three-player deal there. So they they had their their arms tied behind their back in that sense. But, I mean, you're spot on. It's It's not a good deal at all. He's already 31 years old. Physically, he's deteriorating. Uh, you know, the numbers for DJ and, and, and particularly, uh, I mean, he's going up against, he does not start. He's, he comes off the bench and he, he's probably their best rebounder. And I mean, it's, it's tough to say positive things about DeAndre Jordan's game at this point, but the contract is not good. And, uh, the fact that they, uh, gave it to him, and then you know I, what I'm what I'm thinking about when I hear this quote is like Kyrie says this after a six for twenty one shooting performance uh, where he scores fourteen <laughs> points. Like 
I just, I, I, what type of leadership is that? What type of, I mean, he, he just returned from a mysterious shoulder injury, missed 26 games. Uh, you know, they beat the Atlanta Hawks in his first game back, the worst team in the league. They lose to the Utah Jazz the next night. Uh, and this is the th- his third game. And it's like, how, why are you saying this now? It, it's like, I just don't understand what, what, what good could come from it. Yeah, I have some very real questions about that as well. Uh, you did mention that DeAndre Jordan has been coming off the bench a lot, but I think there have just been a lot of interspersed minutes with that Nets roster. So I, I kind of do look at on-off in the Nets case as something that isn't the be-all, end-all, but is you know a piece of the puzzle worth stating, right? So they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, eight guys this year, including DeAndre Jordan, that have played at least 400 minutes. And DeAndre Jordan's on-off rating and his net rating is negative 6.1. The worst net rating among those other guys is Karras right now at negative 3.7. So he is – lineups with DeAndre Jordan in the game are basically twice as bad as – lineups with Karis LeVert in the game right now. And Karis LeVert's on-off rating has not been particularly valuable for the Brooklyn Nets this year. So, again, some of this is contextual. He comes off the bench a lot, but look, like, Spencer Dinwiddie's coming off the bench with him a decent amount of the time. Like, this roster, even though it doesn't have the kind of star power that it will have next year when Kevin Durant comes back, it's actually like a fairly deep roster I think like they still need some more pieces to compete at the highest levels but this is a roster that does have talent and I'm just very yeah like it just comes back to why like why Kyrie this there's just no this doesn't help you this doesn't help you whenever you have to re-sign Joe Harris in the summer this doesn't help you when uh, you have to deal with a Jared Allen you know contract coming up here None of this is beneficial to anyone, Kyrie. No, and then, I mean, I think one of the more intriguing questions about this Nets team is Karras and Spencer Dinwiddie as pieces that can actually complement Kyrie and Kevin Durant next season. I mean, that's that's to me, like, this whole season for them is it's about self-discovery. It's about seeing who meshes with Kyrie because, obviously, you can't see who meshes with KD, uh, but, you know, I think, you know, last night, Kenny Atkinson had this quote about how, you know, playing Karis, Spencer, and Kyrie at the same time is, is really difficult, and he's basically taking it on a game-to-game basis uh, is, and seeing, you know, judging on feel whether or not those three can, can coexist at the same time, which to me is pretty problematic because next year when Kevin Durant is there, that's 18 fewer shots at least for those three um, for those three to 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 take so i mean all of them are best with the ball in their hands i feel like except except probably except kd i mean kd's obviously a monster with the ball in his hands but uh spencer needs the ball in his hands i think karis can play off the ball a little bit but he's best with the ball in his hands um and you saw last night in the sixers game some uh, some possessions where, you know, Kyrie would run a pick and roll. Uh, the the Sixers would take it away. He'd swing it back to Spencer, and then Spencer would run a quick pick and roll, and they got some good stuff out of that. So uh, I feel like it's just it's going to be really interesting to see if those three players can complement one another, and that's what this is all about more than wins and losses for this team right now, I feel like. Yeah, no, and I, I totally agree with that in every way. I mean, trying to figure out how this roster fits together is pretty critical to me. Uh, to me, like an interesting trade possibility that I think I've brought up on this podcast with Coles Wicker in the past is, like, looking at Minnesota, they have a pretty real need at point guard. Like, if I was Minnesota, I'd be strongly asking about Spencer Dinwiddie right now. And, like, if I was a team that needed a point guard – I feel like he is an interesting player to go get, but like part of me also really wants Spencer if I am the Nets in the playoffs because he's big enough to not be a liability defensively in the playoffs. He is a real shot maker in the half court. He has just that mentality of not being afraid and being totally fearless in the playoffs. Like 
so in that vein, like, is it Karis LeVert is the guy you move? I, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I'm very unclear on where they go from here, but it, it is a real problem that they have to solve here going forward. Yeah, just I feel like a great point about, uh, you know, teams around the league. I think teams around the league are looking very closely at this situation because, look, Spencer's on a contract that is very tradable. The Nets are not – once he's a free agent two summers from now, the Nets are, are not going to be in a position to re-sign him to no. his market value. So, I mean, his the, I think the clock is ticking here. And, you know, one fake trade that I've been thinking about a lot is uh, Spencer to the Orlando Magic in a package to get Aaron Gordon to the Nets because I feel like Aaron Gordon is the type of player who, you know, theoretically – he loves playing with the ball, but theoretically – uh, can really have a positive impact without it in his hands. A terrific, versatile defender. Uh, you know, Spencer is bigger than people think. Six uh, six, pretty strong. Yeah. He can, he can, you know, hold his own down low in situations that call for it. But he's not even close to someone like Aaron Gordon. So that would be a type of fake trade that, or a, tra- a trade that, if I was in the Nets front office, I would potentially be exploring. Or if I was Orlando. I would think is really interesting as well as Markel Fultz has played of late. Uh, so uh, it's it's just going to be really interesting to see how these guys coexist. I, I, I personally, I don't think Spencer is a good enough three-point shooter and has not proven to be throughout his career to be in that role where he's just kind of hanging out in the corner or, or coming off a pin down or whatever on the weak side or whatever to to create space and create opportunities for himself with with Kevin and Kyrie also in the game, particularly in crunch time. So I just, I think the writing is on the wall and he will eventually be on a different team. And it's just going to be fascinating to see how that kind of plays itself out. Yeah. The bulk is a really interesting point as well. If only because the rest of their core is pretty skinny right now. Like if you look around, I mean, Karras has done a really good job on his frame, but he's still relatively by NBA standards, at least a skinny guy like Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. These guys are pretty skinny. Spencer, as you mentioned, pretty skinny guy, Uh, even like Jared Allen, who is very clearly better than Deandre Jordan at this stage. Like he has problems dealing with these bigger bulky centers. You can kind of angle him out of the post. So, I actually really like that idea in terms of Aaron Gordon. I like the idea of trying to go out and find that like bigger uh, four man, like three, four combo that can uh, go out and like really make some things happen. It's funny. Like the team that aligns most with Brooklyn right now for a trade is Philadelphia, but there's no way that I think either of those two teams is going to try and help the other compete for a title just because they have to play each other four times a year. And theoretically, over the course of the next three years, those are two of the four teams that we'll say will be competing at the top of the East. Yeah, it's tough to construct a trade with those two just because they're both in win-now mode. So I don't even know what the Sixers would give up to get Spencer that the Nets would want, theoretically. Uh, Speaking about, like, just Brooklyn's lack of size, like, they play Torian Prince at the four, right now like it's you know he's like 219 pounds so uh i it's just this team has a lot of needs that are clear but going back to the kickstarter for this conversation like Kyrie did not need to say that publicly and acknowledge it in front of reporters and i don't know why he did so yeah it just creates a real you know question for the team now i think going forward in a way that just isn't it isn't necessary, right? It, it isn't useful. It isn't something that needs to happen. And I think that we're seeing the benefits of not having someone like Kyrie kickstarting shit all over the place with the Boston Celtics <laughs> right now. Uh, that was Kyrie's, you know, exciting thing that he tried to seemingly do to bust his teammates' ass and try and get them in gear last year. And, didn't work and now he's gone and Celtics have brought in Kemba Walker and everything looks a lot more fun for Boston right now. I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, they just lost last night to the Detroit Pistons because, uh, Tatum did not play, I believe in his first game of the season, but like this team just like heading into the season. I think that there was just a clear 
top two tier, and then it was very mysterious what was below in the Eastern Conference with the Bucks and yeah. the Sixers at the top. I, I don't think that that's the case anymore. I think that – I mean, I would put this I, – I think the Celtics are contenders. I think that uh, they can legitimately – uh, I think I'm in the minority on this one. I think as currently constructed that they could get to the finals. Uh, I know that obviously they're they're probably going to be seeking short-term upgrades uh, before the trade deadline, and they have a few things that they can dangle, including this Memphis Grizzlies pick, which <laughs> the Memphis Grizzlies are all of a sudden like the best team in the world, so that pick is not going to have as much value as they anticipated. Uh, so that will be conveying to them this year, unless John Morant, you know, breaks his leg, heaven forbid. So uh, they're probably going to make uh, a move before the deadline, uh, but just so far, like it's just it's night and day between this and last season. And the fact that their defense has been top five basically the whole year, their offense has been sizzling. Kemba's been terrific. You know, they've they've morphed their offense or, or molded their offense around him. You know, they run a ton more pick and roll than they have over the past couple seasons, including when Kyrie was healthy, uh, including when Isaiah Thomas was, you know, uh, an MVP candidate. So they're, they're playing around him really well. Tatum has made uh, a leap, even though he's not as efficient as uh, I think the Celtics would want him to be, particularly around the rim. Uh, Jalen Brown has made his contract look like a steal. And when healthy, Gordon Hayward has fit in uh, remarkably well. So uh, I think they're a little bit thin on the bench uh, right now and a little young. But this team is really good, man. Can can we talk about the Jalen Brown deal real quick? Because yeah, sure. I did not understand why Boston did that whenever they did it. Uh, if mm-hmm. only just because I felt like it locked them in at a price point that he had not proven himself to be worthy of in addition to uh, kind of just not getting enough of a discount at, at that price tag, just given the, what his max is if he goes and signs an offer sheet with another team or if they wait until the summer. I was just very wrong about that. He's just awesome. Like, he's very good. He's very clearly, (laughs) like, improved his patience around uh, his driving game, particularly, and around his finishing game. He's become a lot more of a one-footed finisher. Like, he can maneuver around guys, and I think that being a one-footed finisher definitely goes into the patience angle. He's just very good now in a way that we have not seen from him. I don't know if the shooting is going to continue to hold just because he has always been like a bit of a streaky shooter. And I'm willing to see if this, you know, just is another hot streak that will uh, taper off slightly. But the way he plays the game is markedly different now. And I think that that's the most important part of this. Like the way that the game has slowed down around him is so essential to his development. He does look like, you know, a future all-star at this stage now. Oh, I mean, I I would not be shocked if he made it this season. I mean, I... I'm not sure I, I would either. No, I mean, when you're averaging... 20 points a game, seven boards, uh, shooting 40% from the three-point line, 50% from the floor. Uh, you're on one of the best teams in the league. Uh, like, there's there's a case for that's trying to be floated for Zach Levine right now. Like, Jalen oh, Brown no. is a better player than Zach Levine. I don't no, – no GM and – I mean, Zach – maybe they'll like that contract, but no GM in the league would take Zach Levine over Jalen Brown. I mean, <laughs> like – looking at the just the two-way compatibility and just how much easier it is to to formulate line, lineups because Jalen can play defense and you don't have to cover for him and I mean most nights he's guarding the other team's number one threat so I mean his value is through the roof I think when they first uh you know made that contract offer they did it for a few reasons uh, primarily they do they do save some money, which is good because they're going to have to pay through the nose for Jason Tatum next season. And uh, you know, I, I feel like the Atlanta Hawks were laying in wait. At least there were a few teams that with max cap space, and all of them, you know, Jalen Brown would fit the profile as being a valuable uh, addition. So I think that they do save some money, uh, and then just you know, keeping him happy and showing that you are. Uh, confident in his abilities 
and sending a message to everyone else in the locker room like, hey, if you work hard, if you improve, if you sacrifice for the greater good, as Jalen has throughout his entire career, then you're going to get rewarded. So the contract was never that controversial to me. Uh, but, I mean, I can see why, based on the season that he had, where he kind of plateaued statistically, that it was kind of a little bit of a shock to some people at that number. But it's looking like a really smart investment by the Celtics right now. I think he's, like, almost definitely going to make the All-Star game. Like, I'm just doing some, like, back-of-hand, like, listing of guys right now. Like, I, I probably would take him over Jason Tatum this year, to be honest. Like, I know Tatum's averaging maybe, like, a point or two more per game. But I think that Jalen's probably a more overall effective player right now. Yeah, so I go back and forth. I think that I I would personally choose Tatum, and I do that because the numbers are, like, inarguably better. Uh, just, you know, the there's advanced numbers and then there's – uh, just the raw numbers there, inarguably in Jalen's corner. But the way that the – first of all, like Tatum's role on the team is just so much different. Like Tatum plays yeah. a ton of his minutes with, you know, four bench guys, and he'll carry them, and he'll be the number one. Like he'll have the target on his back from the other team and still gets it done, and he makes plays for other people, and he moves the ball, and he's so smart with his head up in transition – uh, gets any shot he wants, uh, but he's really learning to kind of read the game better. Jalen is just kind of like he'll catch a pass off of like a Kemba drive. He'll catch a Kemba kick out, like pump fake and just put his head down and drive to the basket. And that's been like a huge part of him in the half court this season. Like they're just, their roles are just so different where uh, I feel like Tatum is more impressive in just what he's been asked to do so far this season, but uh, I can see both arguments for both. And then like, obviously like there's the plus minus thing with Tatum where he's just, you know, uh, it's like plus two sixty or something. And nobody else on the Celtics is within a hundred points of that. And when Tatum sits, they're actually in the minus. Whereas any other player on the Celtics, if they sit, they're still outscoring their opponent. So Tatum has just been really invaluable to everything that they do, and his defense has been incredible this season as well. That's, so I, That's actually what I wanted to bring up. I think that Tatum has made, like, a very, very real leap defensively. Like, I would have never guessed that there was even a conversation to be had about him versus Jalen defensively. I actually think Jason's probably a little bit better defensively than Jalen now. Oh, I, I 100% agree with that. I mean, the length... He doesn't foul like Jalen. Jalen makes a lot of like really like what were you thinking on that one fouls and mistakes that he'll eventually grow out of one would hope. But Tatum is just so much more disciplined because I mean, he trusts his arm length and his wingspan. And I mean, he's like a low key rim protector out there. Like they, I feel like in the playoffs when they do go super small in situations with smart Kemba Hayward, Tatum and Brown, like, Tatum is going to be a presence in the paint, like, and, and we'll see how that works out for them. But uh, the fact that they can even have that as an option is a huge benefit. Yeah, it'll be a situation where, like, Marcus is tasked with guarding probably the biggest guy, and then Jason's the weak side rotator coming over yeah. and trying to contest. Um, the other guy I want to bring up is Gordon. I mean, the fact that Gordon is very good, again, is very useful for the Celtics. Like, him, did you think he would get back to where he is? I wouldn't say he's quite at his all-star level, where he was with Utah, but did you think he'd even get to the point where he's, like, a highly efficient 16-6-4 guy who never turns the ball over and shoots, you know, 53-38, and I think it's 85, looking at the number. So, like, I'm, I'm shocked that he has gotten back to this level after seeing him the last two years? I'm not shocked, but I mean, it's, he's from like basically opening night, he's just been so much more comfortable. And I think the coaching staff did a really wonderful job where uh, like the absence of so many guys on last year's team that really, you know, obviously they needed their shots. You had your Marcus Morris's, your Terry Rogier's, et cetera. 
not to mention Kyrie, but like Al Horford is kind of, was kind of like the hub of the offense, and it was yeah. really it was really tricky for Gordon, who's just a natural playmaker, to function the way that he did in Utah with Al Horford also on the floor. So I think this like really low key side benefit of Horford going to Philadelphia has been that it has allowed Hayward and even Tatum a little bit to become more playmakers and to broaden their roles and uh, flash things that they can do that they weren't really allowed to do last season or had an opportunity to do. So Gordon's been like great. And he's just like, when he's aggressive, cause you kind of forget how big and strong he is. Um, yeah. And the fact that they, he plays in a lot of lineups, obviously with, with Kemba and with Tatum and Jalen, like there's only so many good, above average defenders that any team in the league can play together at any given time. So when he gets the short straw and has someone on him who he can dominate, like he's really strong. He gets to his spots, like the, the, the when he attacks the pain and then he does that little fall away from like 10 feet. It's basically automatic this season. Uh, and he's always been like a really good outside shooter too. So I figured that that would kind of come back once yeah. he got his rhythm and it has. So before he broke his hand, I thought he was maybe the best player on the entire team and would uh, he would look like an all-star at that point. He's kind of still working his way back, uh, not working his way back rhythmically, rhythmically, but the numbers just aren't what they were before that. But just look, when you just watch him play, uh, he just looks so much more at peace than he did at any other point in the Celtics uniform. Are you surprised that there hasn't been a real drop off defensively without Al Horford. Shocked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're playing Ennis Cantor these minutes now because, well, Tice came back last night, but Tice has been banged up. Robert Williams has been banged up. Um, and yeah, so you're playing Cantor, who's, you know, if you just look at his entire career, like, his teams have always been so much worse at defense when he's on the court. And I haven't checked this in a while, but one of my favorite stats was that Ennis Cantor's defensive rating this season is better than Al Horford's, which is like, it's mind blowing. I would never in a million years expect that to be. And it's not that Cantor is a better defensive player than Al Horford at all, but the fact that they are able to defend at a top five rate with him on the floor uh, last I checked is like a real testament to the coaches, first of all, and then also everybody else around him. I mean, that's when we, when we talk about like Tatum's value as a defender, it's because he's so intelligent and uh, shrinks the floor, can close out, has these really long arms. Jalen is just this athletic specimen. Marcus Smart was first team all defense last season and when healthy is as good as it comes at his position and so you just have this all these really great defensive players, and they've somehow been able to mask the flaws that Cantor has had his entire career and let him just do what he does best, which is you know bully on the offensive glass, which is where he's been an absolute monster. So, no, I, I mean, I, I did not expect this. Uh, but, I mean, the last thing I'll say really quickly is just that a staple of Brad Stevens' teams has been – uh, you know, getting back like so much in the NBA is just like effort when it comes to defense. So if Brad Stevens' philosophy is, or, or one of the staples of his of his of his defensive tenement is get back on defense, like don't create situations that allow the other team to score in transition, and you do that, all of a sudden, like in the half court, it's so much harder to score as it is. So you're at an advantage if you just like put the effort in to run back on defense and identify who you're supposed to guard, like the little things. And they've done that this season. So, and a lot of teams in the NBA don't do that. So that I think has been kind of just this, this side benefit of just following or just like paying attention to what your coach is saying and doing it. So you brought up the defensive rating with Ennis Cantor. Uh, right now, the Milwaukee Bucks lead the NBA in defensive rating at a 101.4 uh, mm-hmm. points per 100 possession number. The Celtics with Ennis Cantor on the floor are currently giving up 99.9 points <laughs> per 100 possessions. Uh, yeah, that's insane. Yeah, it's really just remarkable. I think that uh, 
you know, Brad Stevens really is unbelievable. It's, you know, Grant Williams lineups have also been really good defensively, and Grant often kind of eats up some of those minutes at the five. Uh, Tice has been really good defensively, even though, like, his numbers may not back it up all that much. Um, but he's been very, very useful for them, the way that he can move his feet on the perimeter. He's not, like, a elite-level shot blocker, but he contests reasonably well around the basket. So that kind of leads into my next question. You brought up the idea earlier that you believe the Celtics can make the finals without an upgrade at center uh, because you said that they can make the finals as presently constructed. Do you really see them as being (laughs) in the market for a center? Because – it's hard with their salary structure, I think. Like, it's actually somewhat difficult to come up with a trade that makes sense for the Celtics at center because, like, they can't be in the market for Steven Adams. They can't be in the market for Dwayne Dedman if they really thought that was the idea that they wanted to go down. Like, they just can't be in the market for these guys that are, like, $13 million to $25 million centers even because that would require trading one of their core pieces. Yeah, it's really tough for them to cobble enough salary to get anything meaningful. And there are a couple centers out there who might be in their price range, but maybe not worth giving up a valuable asset to get. Like, just off the top of my head, someone like Jakob Pertl. Oh, I'm so is... glad you brought up Jakob Pertl. I've been <laughs> beating that drum for a while now. Would you trade the uh... – how many of the Celtics first round picks would you trade this year? All of them <laughs> or just the Memphis pick? No, I'm I'm joking. But like I realistically would give up one of their first round picks this year because they're currently slated to have 3 for Jakob Pertl and not think twice about it. Yeah, I mean, they have the Bucks pick, so that's going to be the 30th pick uh in the draft and I could totally see them being more than happy to, you know, Hey, take this pick plus uh, Rob Williams. Like, yeah, so, something like that. I feel would be. Uh, I mean, they're high on Rob Williams, but that that type of trade I feel like would be really beneficial to them because Pirtle is just such an upgrade in pure competence uh, at that position. I mean, if I was the Celtics, also like three point shooting, you can never have enough shooting. They don't have a lot of good three-point shooters. You mentioned Grant Williams, who's uh, started the season 0 for 23, has since balanced things out a little bit um, and has been shooting the ball fine. But, like, a lot of guys in the rotation beyond, you know, you Tatum, you have Jalen, you have Kemba, Hayward shooting the ball pretty well. But, like, off the bench, there's just not a lot of guys who can space for you, and there's just so many young guys, too. So if they could get some veteran who – uh, can space the floor, maybe even one with size who can uh, play the four a little bit. That would be nice because they don't have a traditional power forward. Um, but, yeah, it's it, every team that's a championship contender can upgrade, obviously. But when I just look at them and I see their weaknesses and I see their strengths, I think they're in good a, sh- a shape as any team in the Eastern Conference to make it out. So, Damari Carroll has not been very good this year. We can just kind of call it what it is, right? I wonder if they might be willing to take a little rehabilitation shot on Damari Carroll in a deal with Jakob Pertl saying like, hey, we'll take Carroll back or whatever. We'll give you, God, it's hard with their salary structure to even get to Damari Carroll because Damari's making like $7 million. Yeah, I actually brought up Damari, and uh, we do a Celtics pod called Winning Plays, and uh, Damari was actually the first player I mentioned as people that the Celtics should target before the deadline. So me and you, we're just on the same wavelength, Sam. So let's do Damari Carroll and Jakob Pertl for, God, like you almost have to give up Cantor. To do that. Cantor would almost definitely have to be involved. They'd probably ask for someone like Romeo if they don't want the pick. Uh, Tice might have to be involved. So it's just, it's a Shemi, but Shemi makes nothing. So it's like, it is well, just incredibly can, difficult to package something together. If, if you want to do Carol and Pirtle, 
I believe, and I'm going to check this in the trade machine as we talk about it, I believe that you can do Cantor, Langford, and Javante Green for Pirtle and Carroll, right? Yeah. Yeah, you can do Jakob Pirtle and Carroll for Cantor and Langford and Javante Green. I don't think they would give up Romeo in a deal like that because I feel like, you know, two years down the line, three years down the line, that salary is going to be really important for them because you're going to have Jalen on his contract, Kemba on his contract. Maybe you re-sign Hayward. Tatum is going to be making the max. And you're going to need guys who are on rookie scale deals to contribute. And so the Romeo pick is actually pretty important for them going forward. And he's played like – he hasn't, you know, done anything miraculous in his minutes, but he does play hard and with like this weird confidence that I was not expecting. So, uh, I feel like he could be a player in their rotation uh, in a couple years. So I think they're going to actually. They, I, I doubt that they. I think they would be. They would be more willing to part with one of the late first round picks, either their own or Milwaukee's, than give up on Romeo this early. Well, you have to get there salary-wise. Is why I included him. I mean, maybe yeah, you actually tough. you actually might be able to do Poirier as well. Yeah, you you can just do Cantor, Poirier, Javante Green, and one of those first. <laughs> Such a sexy package right there! Wow. <laughs> oh man, uh, how how did the Vinny sex finger thing happen? I I, I mean, I'm gonna no comment this because I have no idea what you're talking about. So, <laughs> Wait, really? I have no idea what you're talking about. There's like a weird Celtics Twitter thing where they call oh, Vincent geez. Poirier Vinny Sexfinger. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and... I, I can't even like dabble with weird Celtics Twitter. It's just like it's too much to me. They are very aggressive people. I, and I appreciate them so much. They're very sure. fun. They're very fun. <laughs> um but yeah, we could we could do Canner Poirier Green for and a first for Carroll and Pirtle. They get off of the Carroll deal, which I'm sure that they would appreciate right now. Give up Jakob Pirtle, but yeah, I'm I'm here for this. This is a, so. I, let me ask you. So you make a trade like that? Are you do you think that they are the favorites to come out of the East, or what does that trade do to them in your eyes? I don't, but I think it helps them going forward because I think Pirtle is like one of the more underrated players in the league. And like, I would be very happy to pay him $10 million a year, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe $8 million a year or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, I think the, I guess my point is, I think that in the case of Pirtle, because his counting numbers are as low as they are. And because he's like basically coming off the bench right now for the Spurs, he's a guy that I would be targeting in the assumption that I'd be able to get him at a, relatively lower contract in the summer as well uh just because you know he he doesn't have this crazy backing of you know evidence to say he should be making eight million dollars a year ten million dollars a year yeah that's my thing is like can you what the Celtics need is someone who can either guard Embiid like not 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 saying anyone they need someone to shut down and beat. They sure. just need someone who can like defend him well enough that you do not need to dramatically double team or 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 shade yeah. in his direction. So and I don't know if Pirtle. I that will guy, say this: but... like I think Pirtle did a fantastic job on Jokic last year in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Jokic is obviously a very different player insofar as like he'll go to the perimeter a lot more often, and he can't just like bury you in the way that Embiid can, right? Like right. Embiid will just bury you into the basket at times, and that's a problem. Right, I don't so, know. I, I'd probably be take – I'd be willing to take that risk that Pirtle could figure it out, I think, though. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be the worst trade. I think it would make them a better team for this season, definitely. And Pirtle is a young guy, and as you said, you know, if you can get him at that price that you mentioned, then that's a win for you. Um, but I mean, 
it's tricky because like do you dramatically try to upgrade now and sacrifice anything for the future is this your year is you know with Jalen his age with uh with with Tatum his age with you know I feel like Kemba has a few more years couple more years yep uh, at this level, at an all-star level, like, do you dramatically try to go all in now? I know this isn't a dramatic all-in trade, but you know what I'm saying. Like, I was going to say, I'm giving up, like, Cantor, who's on, what, a year and a player option? Uh, yeah. Poire Green and one of three first-round picks for for Pirtle, basically. And Damari Carroll, who I think might be able to help a little bit. But I, I'm not, I'm not giving up the farm here. No, I'm, I know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm coming up with creative solutions. That's the goal. Yeah, I actually no, don't I think you. the Spurs would do this for what it's worth. I think that they would I want more. I don't either because, like, the uh, – Pirtle is, like, the hub of their bench unit that is the reason that they're competitive this season. So I, I don't know if they're going to be jumping for joy to replace him with Ennis Cantor. Yeah, or just, like, a late first-round pick. That's why I brought up Langford as, like – a right. potential solution to that and like a way to break the deal. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I think it's going to be tough. Um, is there anything else Celtics wise that you want to get off your chest? Any, any exciting things that you feel like are going on? Uh, no, I mean, I could spend the next 20 minutes on why Brad Wanamaker should win six men of the year, but I don't want to, you know, bore this audience with my my, my nonsense and my gibberish. So, I, I uh, will no. say, the Wanamaker thing is just, like, amazing. Like, it's awesome. It's one of my favorite stories in the NBA. He's cool. I enjoy watching him. Uh, solid backup point guard. Getting more minutes than I thought he would this season, so... Good for him. And then the last guy I will ask you about is Grant Williams. Why do you oh, love Grant course. Williams? Of course, of course, of course. Um, I adore Grant Williams. I feel like the Celtics drafted him in large part because of his personality, which is sounds really stupid, but when you mix that personality that he has that's just so gregarious with a high basketball IQ and someone who doesn't care about getting touches and shots and numbers and stuff like that coming off the season that they had, uh, you add a mature person like him into your, your locker room, uh, who's just so jovial and keeps everything light. There's this unquantifiable value there that I think everyone who interacts with him every day really appreciates. So, uh, I love Grant Williams, and uh, it is awesome that the Celtics chose him. Have you gotten a chance to talk to Grant, like, one-on-one yet? No, I have not. Just, it's great. He's <laughs> just the best. I can't everyone, Yeah, everyone who has, who has spoken to him uh, has, I mean, it's this, uh, there's this story about, um, I'm wondering if I should sh- – yeah, whatever, I'll just share it. So the Celtics writer, uh, when they were in New York, it was just during when uh, Grant's three-point uh, drought was in effect. It was like he was 0 for 20 or 0 for 21 or something. And a writer, a Celtics writer said, you know, in passing, like, hey, like we're taking, uh, we're taking bets on when you're actually going to hit your first three to Grant. And – he sh- shoots back. Uh, I got March sixth, so I really, <laughs> appreciate, really appreciate the sense of humor uh, and not taking everything so serious. There's just that's that's just really awesome to hear and see. Yeah, I got to spend a day with him out in Santa Barbara last year. Uh, or yeah, what would have would have been like last June? Just the best, just the absolute best human being in the world. Um, very funny. Takes himself and his craft very serious. Takes his craft very seriously and like really works his ass off, but doesn't take himself very seriously. It's the best. It's like the best combination of traits that you want in like an NBA basketball player. Um, before we move on to the Utah Jazz, it's conference championship time, and you can follow all the lines at BetOnline. Er, BetOnline. Uh, 
The early game on Sunday features Tennessee on the road against Kansas City. They're a touchdown favorite with a total in the low 50s. On Sunday, Green Bay heads to San Francisco as a touchdown dog with the total in the mid-40s. We want Green Bay to win that game, by the way, Pino, because your boy has a 10-to-1 future on Green Bay. Who will (laughs) reign supreme and host the conference championship hardware? Before the next kickoff, head over to betonline.ag and use our promo code CLNS50 to revive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bring the playoffs home with your exclusive sportsbook partner, betonline.ag. Pino, let's talk about Utah real quick, if only just to, I guess, kind of mention Utah has won, I think it's 15 of 17, 15 of 16, something like that. You just wrote about them yesterday, so you will have the number, I assume, right? You are correct. So why are the Utah Jazz finally now figuring it out, as opposed to uh, early in the season where – I don't want to say they were struggling, like they weren't bad early in the season, but there were some real questions, I thought, in terms of how well the pieces were fitting together after all of the movement last summer. I mean, the first thing that anyone should look to is Mike Conley, and he goes out with a hamstring injury, and that's kind of when they they, they replace him with Joe Ingles in the starting lineup, and that's really when things kind of hit the ground. I mean, they've been assisted by a really easy schedule, I think for the past, uh, past like two, three weeks. Uh, and that's obviously super beneficial to them, but you can only play who's in front of you and they've destroyed who's in front of them. They have the best offense in the league over the past month. And basically my story was about, uh, you know, they've only had five all-stars since John Stockton and Carl Malone left the organization, which kind of surprised me a little bit, by the way. But um, Rudy Gobert has never been an all-star. Donovan Mitchell, this is his third year, never been an all-star. And both are playing like all-stars. And so I assume that just, you know, based on how crowded the Western Conference is, that coaches will only give them one. You know, they could vote both in. That's that's definitely conceivable. Um, both are, are are worthy, but I wanted to kind of figure out which one was more valuable to the team, which one was, uh, you know, raise their floor, which one raised their ceiling, uh, who matters more to how they play. And so that's kind of what I dug into with them. And it was, I think they're just a really, really effective basketball team as currently constructed. And it's going to be really, really, really fascinating to see what happens when Mike Conley who we got to see him practice the other day in New York City, and he looked really good physically. Um, so I would assume he's on his way back pretty soon, and I, I I just can't wait to see how they fit him back in, and you know does he even start? That's a, that's a legitimate question um, because they need uh, you know their starting lineup right now has just been dump trucking people and you know if you remove Ingles who's just had so much success it wouldn't really make a ton of sense and you can't really remove someone like Royce O'Neal because he's their best perimeter defender and so his he has obvious value there and then you know Boyan Bogdanovich has not missed a shot in like 65 days so you're not going to take him out of the starting lineup uh, and then the two all-stars. So it's just going to be really really interesting to see what happens with Conley going forward and once they're schedule kind of uh, balances itself out a little bit and they get some tougher competition. Uh, But so far they've looked to me like, I mean, it's going to be interesting also before the deadline, if they make another, and if they don't have a ton of assets to dangle and they already traded for Jordan Clarkson, but if there's another move for them to make, because if you're trying to win the title, this is the year to go for it. I agree that they should probably be going for the title. I will mention off the bench, like, the Emmanuel Moutier thoughts, is that, is that what we're going to call it? Like, <laughs> he's actually been pretty good for the last, I would say, 10 to 15 games, right? Yeah. Like, he's, it seems to have slowed down for him in a way that you really like to see. Like, I don't think he's a future starting point guard or anything, but I'm now at the point where I don't think he's going to be out of the NBA anytime soon, which is really good. Like, shout out Emmanuel Moutier. Um But no, you're right. Like the Mike Conley thing is the biggest question hanging over this team. They really put the ball in Donovan Mitchell's hands a lot more 
it's felt like since Mike Conley has been out. Like, I know that they replaced Conley with Joe Ingles in the starting lineup, and Joe can obviously run pick and rolls and make reads out of ball screen scenarios and stuff like that. But the biggest thing for me is that they seem to be a little bit more heliocentric around Donovan Mitchell than what we've seen in the past. And Donovan has responded in a way to where he is very clearly an all-star player this year, in my opinion. And, like, we can talk about the fit and we can talk about um, just the way that, you know, all of the players around Donovan are playing well. At the end of the day, what it comes down to for me is just like Donovan has taken maybe not as drastic a leap as someone like Pascal Siakam, but he has taken a pretty real leap this year into being able to be the centerpiece of a top 10 offense. Yeah, I mean, Donovan is a total stud. I think when I personally watch them play, I want to see a little bit more from him in terms of his decision-making, but it's a little unfair given, you know, he's so young. He's only 23 years old. It's only his third year. So some of, sometimes he makes decisions that I personally just kind of shake my head at, whether it be like, uh, like a really dumb pull-up 18-footer, with a hand in his face with, uh, you know, 15 on the shot clock for no reason, which he does from time to time. But it's like he also can make those shots, and that's what superstars are able to do. He's a yeah. tough shot maker. And so uh, – And that's what you need in the playoffs too when the game slows down. Yeah, and I think that that is – that's a great point, and that is – that's where his value will really ring true for this team. And so – when I'm when I was comparing Rudy and him for the article, Rudy and Donovan, it was like Rudy is by far more valuable to how they played throughout the regular season and on both ends. I mean, the screen that the screens that he sets, like that's why they run so much pick and roll. With it doesn't matter who the who the ball handler is, like Rudy Gobert is going to be a part of a ton of pick and rolls, uh, and then defensively. Uh, you know, obviously Rudy is Rudy. He's probably going to win his third straight Defensive Player of the Year award this season. Um, yeah, I, but, I don't even think it should be a debate right now. Like Rudy Gobert is very clearly the Defensive Player of the Year. I think. Yeah, he's crushing it. Um, but then we all know what what, has, what tends to happen in the playoffs, which is a lot of the strengths that Rudy has lessen a little bit. They flatten out some. Uh, just because he's not the most versatile defender and he cannot shoot, which is also problematic in the playoffs. Uh, so you take that, but then you have Donovan, who is, as you said, like he's someone who's able to elevate you and separate you from competition late in games because he can get those tough mid-range shots that superstars need to be able to get to. So uh, it, it's kind of really a fascinating duality there. And, uh I mean, I came up on the side that Rudy Gobert is more deserving of an all-star appearance, but I would vote for both if I had a vote and a say. Um, they both have just been so terrific. And, uh, again, like, it's just going to be really fascinating to see what happens when Conley gets back. So I guess here is an, a somewhat maybe interesting question. Like, sh- when voting for Defensive Player of the Year during the regular season, should we account for the fact that Rudy Gobert is less effective in the games that matter most? I think that I think it's a great question, and I think that it's time that the postseason had its own awards. I like I the postseason is just so much different than the regular season for a variety of reasons, and different skill sets. Yeah matter more in the playoffs than they do in the regular season. And at the very least we should award a defensive player of the year in the postseason. Yeah, for sure. Like I, this is obviously something that Draymond has talked about a ton, but I think his value, his value on the defensive end is, is as good in, in January as it is in, in June, if he's playing hard, but it is just so when, you know, when, when the chips are down and you have to go small and you have to put him at the five or something like that, like, there's that's tangible value and you can't really do the same thing uh with Rudy and he's actually you know he has he wasn't like played off the floor or anything last year but yeah it, there are just certain matchups that are just obviously not good because yeah. of what he can't do which is problematic yeah Gobert is giving up uh 
49.7% around the basket this season. He's contesting the most shots uh, in the NBA around the basket this season at 8.6 per game. Um, that 49.7 defensive field goal percentage against is like very, very strongly above average, obviously. Um, it's not quite the best number this year. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns has actually been very good uh, around the basket. Again, I think that a lot of that is structural because of that defensive system. They're running essentially the same system as the Timberwolves, or not the uh, Timberwolves, the Trailblazers the last couple of years with David Vanterpool there and feeding everyone into towns. Uh, and then Kristaps has also been very good around the basket, giving up 49.0 uh, at the basket this season on seven contested field goal attempts per game. But Gobert is very clearly still the guy that I think imposes the most fear is maybe the way to put it. Like, I, I don't know that anyone is turning around and not going to shoot a shot at the basket because Carl Towns is there. But there are legit guys across the league that don't drive into the paint against Utah because Rudy is there. Yeah, 100%. And the other thing about Rudy, uh, well, I just want to quickly say about Towns, like, I don't think it's the biggest coincidence in the world that the Minnesota Timberwolves have had one of the best defenses in the league since Towns went down. I'm just going to throw that out there. So, yeah, reasonable. His, yeah. Um, the thing that stands out to me about Rudy, though, is that he brings it on every play effort-wise, which you can't – like, that that stuff just, like, matters. And he doesn't get plays called for him on offense. He's not getting post touches or anything like that. I mean, so many of his hard roles just benefit the ball handler because he sucks in his own man as a defender and distracts him. So, like, all that stuff to get – like, there's no way to numerically – uh, you know, give him a point or anything like that for, for plays where he doesn't even touch the ball, but he has such a huge impact. So I just, I appreciate that just from like, just, you know, you, you need to watch him play a lot to really appreciate him is I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, is there anything else we want to talk about with Utah? Uh, I mean, Boyan, I, I guess that like there was a small question as to whether or not Boyan's like close to last season with Indiana was just who he is now. And I think it's like very clear that that's just who he is now. He's averaging 20 points a game and shooting 40% from three on seven, three point attempts per game. And like a real amount of them end up being off of movement coming off of screens or off of pull-ups. Boyan's a stud. He really uh, is. Yeah. And he's, you know, again, like it comes back to Rudy, but like the way those two, dance together on, you know, it could be like a wide pin down where he just curls around. He has so much space because of the screen that Rudy set or, you know, Rudy sets a screen so hard that it forces a switch and then he can drive it. Like Boyan is just, he's, he's, this is just a really great situation for him. And then to his credit, he, like I said, has not missed a shot in 65 days. So that's just a really impressive thing about him. (laughs) Um, I'm excited to see where Utah goes. Like, do we think that their ceiling is legitimately a title contender this year? Or do they need to make another move? Man, it's so, it's like, they're a title contender if they avoid one of the LA teams and then Kawhi twists his ankle in the series against the Clippers. Like, it's, I just have a really difficult time imagining a team that has that sort of talent, the teams in LA I'm referring to, like, losing to a team like the jazz just, and Donovan is great and all that. And I think that, you know, they have a chance to get to the conference finals, but like LeBron, it's just, it's like in in those series, like LeBron and AD are going to play on the, on the court at the same time for like how many minutes, like how much percentage of the game are you going to have to deal with that? That's, it's just, that's so tough. And then the Clippers also conversely have just, it's just, it's tough. I just don't, I, I, it's really difficult to look at the Western Conference and not be like one of the two teams in LA is going to make it to the finals. And I, But I would say that Utah, based on just, you know, how they're playing now and, uh, you know, if Gobert is able to 
to move his feet a little bit quicker maybe in the postseason this year, and they run into teams that don't have – I mean, Steph Curry will not be in the picture if they're able to avoid Dame and and uh, any ridiculous like pull-up three threat, then anything could happen. You know, Donovan could get super hot uh, um, and really take the next – uh, take a leap to the next level, um, but like, it's just it, it's just so tough to pick any team besides the teams in LA right now. Yeah, I agree with you, like a hundred percent. Pina, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people about your podcast. Tell them everything that's going on in your life. I, I want to hear it all. Sure. I want to uh, hear about the Blue Hens. <laughs> Give me that. I, I I wish I was following the Blue Hens right now. Um, I have no idea what's going on. The basketball team has let me down every single year, so uh, so I've got, I've got no. You would know more about the Blue Hens right now than me, probably. Twelve and um, six, baby. Oh, okay. I did not know that. That sounds like a positive a positive record. I like it. Um, they, they've lost six of their last nine now that they're in conference play, but twelve and beautiful. six, great start. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, yeah. So uh, anyone who wants to find my my work, uh, I write for SB Nation, uh, host the Winning Plays podcast, which is also uh, with CLNS, and then uh, I've recently started to co-host the uh, SI's Open Floor podcast with Ben Golliver, and that's been a ton of fun. So check me out at any of those those three places. I'm going to have a bunch of stuff coming up this week at The Athletic. I've already done a big thing on Portland with Danny LaRue and Seth Part now. Uh, we've got a couple other things coming up soon this week. Another podcast for you to listen to if you want to listen to Dieter and I riff about random shit on Monday or Tuesday we recorded. So please do that. This will come out on a Friday. So, uh, Pina, thank you for coming on, man. Please leave ratings and reviews, folks, as well. It helps whatever the rating system is on iTunes. It'd be great if you could do that. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.